Welcome to the podcast, Bringing Truth to Life, where we talk about what the scriptures say that can help you get unstuck from the thorny issues of life and encourage you to live the life you've been wanting to live with Christ. Our speaker today is Henry Clay, and we're in a series called A Man After God's Own Heart on the life of King David from the Old Testament. God called him a man after his own heart, but we see that he was far from perfect. What was it about this man that God liked so much? This series looks at David's environment, his experiences, and his responses to try to discover how we can live a life that brings delight to God's heart. Heavenly Father, thank you for the life of David. Thank you for this neat guy that even with his many weaknesses has proven a source of comfort. Lord, his psalms have enriched the whole world with song. And we just ask you to quiet our hearts as we sit at your feet today and think about you, your nature, and what you'd like to find in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, great. We are in the series A Man After God's Own Heart, and this is the ninth week. And actually, we're going to take two weeks on this topic just because it's... Uh, I think you're going to get more out of it if we sort of unpack it together and think about it together. So we'll have a little bit more interaction than I often pull off. But we've been talking about David being a man after God's own heart. That's uh, a phrase that God actually uses about David. And we want to know how to have a life that pleases God. Now, I know that we please God really only by grace through faith, and it's all Him and all of that. But nevertheless, there seems to be something about the qualities, the things that God allowed to be in David that, they, that God really liked. We, each of us would like to have a life of intimacy and impact. Someone once said, you want to know the significance of your life? Take a glass of water, plunge your finger into it, pull your finger out, and the hole it leaves is the significance of your life. And in one sense, that's really true. Uh, you think about how little do you even know about your great-grandfather without getting into your great-great-grandfather. And that's your great-grandfather. Now, how about the person next to you? Even, even your spouse's great-grandfather. Do you even know their name? <clears throat> and certainly, uh, you have even less idea of what did they do in their life. You couldn't walk through each year of your great-grandfather's life, your great-grandmother said, well, this, that year they were doing this a whole year. And you, don't, you couldn't even say one sentence about that year in their life. And so in one sense, it, we're all sitting on the beach and there's sand castles and uh, the tide comes in, the tide goes out. There may, if you built a really big sand castle, you might see kind of a little lump where you had that big, nice castle. But the next time the water comes in, there won't even be the lump there. And so in one sense, the whole idea of having a life a meaningful life, a life of impact, seems like impossible. And yet, we see from the lives of the, of the people in the Bible, David lived 3,000 years ago. And we know kind of a fair amount about his life, probably more than he'd like us to know on some points. And his life continues to impact us today. And that's one of the things about the lives of God's people, that he's the one that makes our life significant. Have you ever compared the lists of genealogies in Genesis? It has two kinds of genealogies. It has the genealogies of those that love God and walked with God. 
And then it's got the, uh, the genealogies of the, of the other guys who just, who just lived their lives. It doesn't say they were, they were particularly bad, but there's no element of devotion, faith, and love toward God. And when you look at the, the, the line of the godly, down through Seth and Methuselah and down to Abraham, it says how long every one of them lived. How many years? That's how we know Methuselah was the oldest because it, uh, on all that list, it gives their ages. On the other list, it doesn't give their ages. You're like, now that's kind of consistently giving it, consistently not giving it. And whose lives are still having an impact today? The lives of the godly. And so we want to... Uh, we, we're not here just to live for ourselves, to live for pleasure, to live for the moment. We're to live to have an impact and to be a blessing throughout the generations. Uh, maybe next week, if I, if I get up the energy to bring my projector and everything, I want to put on the wall here a drawing that was made 120 years ago when my forefather, this is like five grades back, Joseph Clay came to the United States on the suggestion of George Whitfield. When he was just 19 years old, he married a woman named Anne Lagardiere. And, and this, this shows, over the next 120 years, all of their descendants. And it maps it out. And you think, that is absolutely amazing. It's this whole cloud of people, without even counting all the people they married and you know, all the lives, each one of them individually touched. And in one sense, you are a patriarch. Now, maybe your great-grandson won't know your name, but he will feel your influence, for better or worse. So that's kind of what we, uh, some of the things we want to talk about. What would God say about you today? I mean, God, it, it's sort of scary sometimes when, when somebody picks you out from a crowd. You know, if President Obama was speaking and he, and he looked over and says, well, Kevin, you know, <laughs> you know, you never, or George, if, if he called, started calling people out in the service for whatever, it doesn't matter if it was something good or bad. And he says, yes, you back there, John, yes, yes, yeah, I'm talking to you. You know, we'd have a drop in attendance probably. It's an uncomfortable <laughs> feeling to realize that that one person up there actually sees you as a person and maybe notices something about you. might make you feel good. Usually it would make you feel uneasy. And the older we get, the more we are aware of, more aware of our shortcomings than of our virtues. And so we're sure if they notice something, it's going to be that lettuce between my teeth, or, you know, it's going to be something that's not that positive. But that God notices people. He notices you. He knows your name. And he, when he thinks about you, he already, something comes up on the screen. You remember the, the seven letters to the churches in the first three chapters of Revelation? Laodicea and Sardis and all those ones. And what's the very first thing he says? after introducing himself. I know, you. I know your deeds. I've been watching you. I mean, it's like that song about Santa Claus, you know? <laughs> he sees you when you're sleeping. You know, he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Well, well, it really is that way with God. And, but, and God has a sense of where is your life going? What is it meaning? What are you receiving from him? What are you giving and the glorious news of the Bible is you can become more than you are. You're not locked in to rot and decay. You don't have to keep doing worse and worse. You can change. You can grow. Christ in you can make a difference. He can reveal his glory through you. 
So today we want to talk about one of the most important and amazing events in David's life. We're going to talk about the promise that God made to David. One of the things they are discovering with teaching adults that because adults bring so much more knowledge and experience to a teaching setting, getting them more involved in the activity results in more for everybody. So it's not a situation where you're teaching first graders and they really come with zero and you're just trying to fill the cup. Uh, you already have a lot of stuff that you bring in of, of life experiences, of failures, of successes, of opinions and things. And that if we do it more like a workshop, uh, everybody ends up getting more out of it. And so that's, and one of the keys to doing that is starting the dialogue ahead of time. One of the disadvantages of a, the normal way of doing a teaching situ situation is, whether it's up in the sermon or down here, you walk in cold. You walk in with everything that you're dragging behind you. I think, don't forget to do this, and I wonder if that timer is going to go off in the oven, and this and this and this. And you sit down and says, well, let's talk about the Abrahamic covenant. It's like, you know, uh, you're going to keep thinking about what you're thinking. But if you can, if we can get the dialogue started earlier, if I can send you during the week an email that says, this is what we're going to be talking about. Take a look at this and think about these questions. And then when we come together, there's more of a chance that your mind will already be working on those things and we'll all accomplish more in the class. So let me read what I wrote to you. This Sunday we will get into a great topic, God's covenant with David. Uh, you'll get more out of it if you take some time to get ready for it. Here is what I would like you to look at, possibly in your quiet times during the next couple of days. Uh, read 2 Samuel chapter 7. And there were these questions. What did David want to do and why? What was the original counsel he received from the prophet Nathan? What was God's response to David's plan and why? So I just sent you some questions. But we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. And as he hands that out, let's just review where we are when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Israel has moved from a 400-year period of being under the judges, and then the last judge and a prophet named Samuel commissions the first king, whose name was Saul. And Saul wasn't pleasing to God, and God says, Your kingdom will not endure. I've searched out and found a man, according to my own heart, David. And so Samuel goes and anoints David. How many years was Saul king? 30 or 40 years in there. And so it was a long time. I think it was 40 years. And so David's anointed king, and does he become king at that point? How, well, how, what happens? He's being chased. Hide and go seek. For 15 years, and this is hide and go seek with bows and arrows. So, I mean, they were going to kill him. <laughs> it wasn't tag, you're it. Uh, it's tag, you're dead. And so for 15 years, David was on the run, which is another interesting thing to ponder. Why would God pick him, tell him he's going to be king, and then uh, take him to within an inch of his life for 15 years, being miserable out in the desert? So, but he finally does become king. Uh, Saul's killed, and David becomes king, first of the southern kingdom and then the northern kingdom as well. The last time we looked at how God, how they brought the ark into Jerusalem, 
and he'd established Jerusalem as his capital. This is 3,000 years ago. And in chapter 7, we want to now take a look at this, and I'm going to give you a few minutes just to read that page. What did David want to do and why? What was the original counsel from Nathan, and what was God's response to David's plan? So just take a minute, read over that, and then I'll ask you those questions again, okay? All right? So what, what did David want to do? Build a temple. Why did he want to build a temple? <clears throat> So they come from the 40 years of wandering in the desert. Did anyone have a, a house of cedar in the desert? No. They all had tents. And so they were in tents. God was in a tent. But now David has upgraded. He's moved into wildwood. And God is still in a porta temple. And it's getting kind of run down. And he's thinking, this is sort of embarrassing. And so he's feeling bad about this. And so he tells Nathan, the prophet. And what does Nathan say? Isn't it most of the time in your life with most of your decisions that you don't have a word from the Lord, even if you ask him lots of times, even sometimes on big decisions? One time when I was thinking about going to Germany as a missionary right out of college, and it was a big decision because I could either stay and get married to this girl I'd been dating for two years and I had six job offers, or I could leave all of that, disappoint my folks, and raise support, live on charity, as my father puts it, and go to Germany for two years. And that was a pretty big decision. So I fasted and prayed for three days, and really God didn't, didn't seem like he said anything. So anyway, sometimes, a lot of the times you don't necessarily get a word. And, but it's good to seek wise counsel, and a lot of times God just works through that. And Nathan says, it sounds good to me. Then uh, Nathan goes to bed that night, and God talks to Nathan. And uh, so what does God think about this idea? There are three things he says. What, what are the three things God tells Nathan to tell David? Okay. Mm -hmm. I, is, did I miss something? Did I tell you at some point that building a building would be important to me? Okay, he says, uh, even if one was to be built, you're not the right guy to do it. Well, I bet that made David feel good, huh? <laughs> I mean, somebody else could do it, but I can't, you know? Uh, and what else? Six, verse 6. I, I'm fine with what I got, you know? We recently set up the tent, and, you know, it, it would be like if you had a whole team of ants, and you were trying to help the ants, and they were trying to serve you. And up until now, the ants had just kind of lived in their little holes, you know. And they also had a hole where they would go and send up transmissions to you, you know. There was the holy hole. But now they have learned how to build out of twigs little bungalows. And so it's not down under the ground. It's, it's you know, a little, little cooler in the summer maybe, and... Stuff like that. So one of the, the chief ant is thinking, wow, man, we have this cool twig bungalow and we're still going just to the holy hole to talk to uh, Henry. And we, we ought to really ought to build him a twig bungalow too. And it's like, well, I couldn't fit in the hole. I certainly can't fit in the bungalow. I mean, it really doesn't. The main thing is that we're talking. It's not so I'm going to live there like you live there. I can't fit in something like that. And so God doesn't fit in our temples. I mean, we view a, a dwelling place as a dwelling place. We're going to live there. It's going to, when it rains, we're under the roof. 
When it's hot, we turn on the air conditioner. There's all those kind of living things that, that don't affect God at all. So God says three things. He says, you're not the one. We find out later why he's not the one. I'm going to ask you that in a second. Okay, so there any Bible scholars here? Second, he says, there's no precedent. It's not as though I used to have one and I'm really bummed out about it. I've never had one, never needed one. And the third, he says, I never told you. There's no precedent, there's no commandment. And so, really, you know, you, you start off with David and he's got this great idea and you think, wow, you know, he just loves God and he's not just living a selfish life and he wants to have a life of worship and he doesn't just want to build his life here, he wants to build God's kingdom. He wants to, you know, start a building program. That's, that's kind of neat. And, it's, and Nathan, Nathan gets excited. So, you know, when you've talked to a couple of people, they're all for it. You're kind of already moving. You've got sort of blueprints in your mind. You're thinking of who you could get involved in this. And God comes and says, no, I don't want you to do that. Have you ever uh, made something for someone or gotten a present and you knew they were going to be excited about it and you give it to them and you can tell they're not that excited about it? <laughs> or worse, you know? <laughs> Uh, it might have happened with your spouse sometime. And there are a number of things I just won't buy for Wendy. I'm terrified. I just won't do it. I just know uh, I won't make the right decision. And then we'll have the whole awkward thing where she tries to deceive me into thinking, no, no, I really like it. And then we've got to go through all that of taking it back and, and all of that. And it's just going to be a bad experience. You know, I, I meant well, it's just, but it's just not going well. And so here David, one of God's best guys ever, comes up with this idea. God says, nah. And, and you could just sort of feel a deflating sense in David, like, I can't get anything right, you know. So, let's take a look now at what David goes on. Well, one other question I was going to ask you. Uh, why it was David not the one? He was a man of blood. Uh, he'd been involved in a lot of battles, killed a lot of people. He was a war veteran. And somehow that makes a difference. Bloodshed is a very serious thing, even if it is done in righteous warfare. And isn't that interesting that God would prefer Solomon? What does Solomon's name mean? Shalomo is his name in Arabic. Shalom, peace. He was not a man of warfare. And God says, I, I want someone who's a, a man of peace to build the temple of God. Because that's the way the world is really supposed to be. That we love and care for each other. Not that we just can't get along and we have to get divorced or kill each other or start shooting. So those are the, th those are the three things. And God says, no, uh, really, uh, I'm not interested in the house. That, now let's take a look at verses 8 through 17. I'm going to give you another few minutes to look at that. And I want you to look at what does God now move into saying and what does he promise to David, okay? Okay. Well, what were the things that uh, God promises to David? Yeah, isn't that something? That's not a house. This is a house, you know. I'll make you a house. Which we're particularly sensitive to because we just went through David's disappointment of having come up with this idea to build God a house. And God says, well, I don't need a house, but uh, I'm going to build you a house. Okay. What else? Dynasty. Verse 9. Eternal good vibes. Solomon. Okay, so he says, I'm going to look after your boy. And all boys get into trouble. <laughs> he says, but I will, I'll be there when you can't be there. 
That would be a neat thing for God to say about your boy, wouldn't it? Your boys are going to be facing an awful lot of things in the next 15 years. And God say, but I'm, I'm going to be there. If he goes astray, I'll get after him. But my loving kindness will never depart from him. What a beautiful, incredible thing. You know, it all kind of goes around, it's all circling around that term, house. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. What has David just finished doing when we get to verse 1 in chapter 7? Okay, he built his own house. So he, he has finished his own home building project. He's, for the first time, got the best house he's ever had in his whole life. And God says, I'm going to make a house for you. It's like, you know, I need a car is what I need. I've got the house. A, a, a chariot, you know, a stallion like Zorro has, something. But, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't really need two houses. What, what does he mean by the word house here? Now, verse 11, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Genealogy. Yeah, it's a bigger concept, isn't it? You've heard the term uh, Bethel, Bethel Bible Camp. In Hebrew, it's a Beit El. Beit El. This is an abbreviation for God, Elohim. And this is the word for house, the house of God. And that was where Jacob saw the, the ladder going up into heaven, the angels of God descending and ascending. And he says, this is truly the house of God. This is where God has been. This is where God dwells. And so when he says, I will make a house for you, by the other things he says, you realize he's not talking about a cedar dwelling place. He's talking about offspring, lineage, legacy. It's like you're the patriarch over a flock that will be growing. And, you know, you tend to view yourself as very small, probably. And some days you feel even smaller. And particularly if you're a mom with small children, you feel very small because you're just hidden away taking care of ungrateful, grumpy, often disobedient little children that absorb all of your time just to try to keep them alive and try to move them along the path of education and human decency. And you think, I'm just really having to expend an awful lot of my life just sink it into this hole and I'm hoping everything turns out okay, but it's not really what I'd originally kind of pictured life being like. But the same thing can happen in your job. You feel just very shrunk down into one little thing. But the point is God takes people that are very, very insignificant, just as insignificant as any of us, and he makes a whole tribe out of them. But God has something flowing into and through your life and then out through generations so that within just 150 years it could be that 150 to 200 people trace their lineage back to you that you without even meaning to became a patriarch and think wow you know sorry I missed it you know <laughs> my, my life the whole time during my life was kind of a no big deal you know and later on uh, but God God used it God blessed. And God is saying to David, because you see, Saul, for Saul it was over. He was gone. And all of his kids were, most of them ended up dead. In fact, you look at just the appearances of the names in the Bible, do you look in your concordance sometime. 
And see, when is the last book that Saul has ever named? And it's just in the historical books of the Old Testament. First Saint Samuel, First Saint Kings, First and Second Chronicles. After that, I think it's only one time in the book of Acts when it does a historical flyover in chapter 7 at Stephen's defense. It's the only time I think Saul's name appears again. That guy is gone. So we don't even need to remember his name. David, on the other hand, apart from the names of God and Jesus, is the most mentioned name all the way through the whole Bible. And it's the last name mentioned in the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. Not Abraham, not Adam, not Peter, Paul, David. Jesus himself says, I am of the root and lineage of David. God had gave him an eternal legacy, an eternal name. And so when he says, I'm going to make a house for you, he says, I'm going to set up something that's so firm, so strong. Now at this point, had David sinned with Bathsheba? Did, David, did God know that David was going to sin with Bathsheba? And yet he still makes a promise like this. He says, wow, man, I'm going to have to think about that. What does that tell me about what kind of a God we serve? That even knowing the things, the stupid things you've done and the bad things you might do someday, God is willing to enter into a, a commitment with you and say, we'll work on it together. And I'm committed to making you significant in this world. Let's talk just a minute about promises and we'll end when the, in about another five minutes. But this will kind of launch us into our next week's ruminations because we, what we want to get to is we, we want to get to the so what on this. And there are a couple of different kind of so what's. But I'm going to need uh, your participation in it. First, let me just ask you, what's been your experience with Bible promises? Anybody have a little bo those boxes of little cards that have Bible promises? You ever heard of those? No? Different generation. Yeah, they used to, 20 years ago, they would sell, you could buy a little plastic box of cards, and on every card there was a different Bible verse that was considered a promise. Any, anybody ever seen one of those? Or do you feel like God's ever made a promise to you? Do you ever think about God's promises? Is there any particular promise that's been special in your life? that you can think of? Never I'll never leave you or forsake you. It's one of the main things that in the life of Dawson Trotman who founded the Navigators, he felt like God had really laid some particular promises on his heart that he was going to do through him. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that next time. But, but before we do that, let's look at what is a promise? Now, I mean, we may have talked about this in one of the classes, but... I want you to just talk with two or three among yourselves now about what is a promise and why it's important. Okay, what you come up with? What's a promise? An obligation to follow through? A guarantee. A guarantee. What kind of a guarantee? I'm, I'm, it's a lifetime guarantee. Uh, if It can be conditional. If you do what I tell you to do, I will do. Okay, okay. You, so it can be conditional. Could be either it could way. Be unconditional. Yep. Could be. I will. Love I'm going to get you back. Doesn't matter what you do. I'm going to get you. Yeah, I mean, promises can be negative. 
All vengeance was, is based on a, 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 an inner promise that I am going to be judge and jury and, and address this injustice. Okay, somebody else? Okay, yeah. Uh, and that's something that's kind of slipped away mm -hmm. from our culture, but that is a part of our original DNA, uh, that promises are made to be kept, commitments should be honored, the Bible talks about it, it says, he who swears to his own hurt and yet does not change. In other words, they make a promise, it ends up not being as favorable as they thought it was going to be, but they don't then go back on it. And you waved your hand, did you have something to add? Temporal pain. Uh-huh, right, yeah, right. In biblical God. promises, we, we don't, God is not always as clear as we would have liked him to be. Well, so yeah. Misinterpretation. You can be. Is. You can be sure that David pictured it differently than how God meant it. <laughs> and that would be another interesting topic. Why do you think God does that? And I have some thoughts on that, but that's a different subject as well. <laughs> but a promise is a commitment to a certain future behavior. Promise never relates to the past. Well, I promise that yesterday, and now you could be promising I'm telling you the truth about the past. I, I promise that yesterday really I was going to the store. But whether or not you're going to the store, it's, it's already happened. So that, that the promise isn't about you're going to the store. It's I promise you I'm telling you the truth now that I was going to the store then. So it's a promise to certain future behavior. And I wonder if you can imagine a world without promises. And what difference does it make? And the kind of things we're going to look at, we want to look at next week are these. You are in the process of teaching the next generation about promises. And your, the development of your thinking on it will affect how you teach on it. And your children are stronger if they have better reasons. And so it's not a strong reason to say, well, when you make a promise, you should just keep it. Why? Because you just should. You know, if you can take a step forward in these couple of weeks on what is a promise, why is it important, you have a better chance of communicating that to your kids and giving them a stronger foundation in a world that is trying to completely rob them of that ability. And so you need to know what it is, why it's important, and also be able to understand what is it that's flowing out of the character of God. Uh, in terms of this, this issue of promises. And then finally, we want to look next week also, if you, can, can you hand these up? This is the rest of the chapter. You'll find you get more out of it if you read and mark, circle stuff. But I, I, God has made this promise to David. And what I want you to study for next week is how did David take it and why? Because, again, he's come through the disappointment. I want to build a house. God says, couldn't care less. How about this? And now you're going to take a look at what does David say? How does he respond back to God? Because that's where we're going to find principles in terms of how is he a man after God's own heart. So there's a number of things to pick up about who God is and what does it mean to be a, a, a man or a woman after God's own heart in terms of David's response. But we're out of time. So I'm going to close in a word of prayer. Lord, we bow before you, and we do want to continue to dig into this chapter. We just sense that there's a lot here about who you are and how you deal with us. And also there, there's uh, something special in terms of the type of commitments that you make to us and you want us to make to you. 
And as we not only seek to walk with God, but also seek to help our children walk with God and love you. Lord, we need to keep learning and growing, meditating on these things so that you have a great impact on our life that we could pass on to the next generations. Bless us today. Bless each one that has come, Lord. I pray that some truths today would stick like like cockspurs stick to your socks when you walk through a field. That it would just stay with them this week as they think, now what is going on here with David and this promise from God and his response and everything? And then help us next week to really apply it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us on Bringing Truth to Life. If the message has encouraged you, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast. We hope you'll join us again for the next podcast of Bringing Truth to Life.